You thought you'd heard the last of Partygate, now it's Beergate. And Sir Keir Starmer being very evasive indeed. What does it all mean? Do you care? Are they all as bad as each other? We'll look at tomorrow's local elections taking place right across the length and breadth of the United Kingdom. What will it all mean for the party leaders? And joining me on Talking Pines, an American journalist who exposed Hunter Biden only to be shut down by the giants of Silicon Valley. We'll talk about that, and could Elon Musk be a saviour? Many of you thought you'd heard the last of Partygate. It was beginning to bore you. Others, I know, had been incensed by it. But now it's all changed. The tables have turned, or have they? It's Beergate, yes. It's that get-together in an office in Durham that took place during elections last year. Now, we saw photographs taken through the window of Sir Keir Starmer. He's insisted throughout the last few months that it was simply a work event and just a few people in a room. But it turns out that £200 of takeaway curry was ordered. It turns out there were quite a lot of people there. It turns out claims that afterwards they all went back to work just aren't true, according to a couple of witnesses. And over the last two days, when Sakir Starm has been interviewed on this, he has been evasive, to say the least. Asked has he been contacted by Durham Police since more revelations? There is no answer. Asked how many people were at the party, and he has no answer. Now, I do understand he doesn't want to get caught in the trap of being seen to lie, which certainly is an accusation we could level at a senior party figure who's alleged that Angela Rayner was not at the event when it turns out that she was. Was it just a get-together for 30 people, or was it a booze-up involving local activists that went on for some hours? All I can say for certain is whether you're bored with this or not, it is Sir Keir Starmer that has got up repeatedly, week after week, in the House of Commons, as the paragon of virtue, the man setting the standards by which public servants in this country should live. And when it comes to him being questioned about his own actions, he is, as I say, evasive. It all makes me wonder, are they both, in effect, as bad as each other? Tell me what you think, Farage at gbnews.uk. Now, I'm not for one moment suggesting that if you've got elections going on in your area tomorrow that you shouldn't vote. I'm just saying that standards in public life don't appear to be very good. Why not just fess up? Why not just say, you know what, we did, we'd been out campaigning for day after day, it was Friday night, it was ahead of a bank holiday weekend, and yes, we had a few drinks. Because I think actually the truth is most of us broke lockdown rules in some way, we just want, I think, a little bit more honesty. Now, let's recap what is happening across the United Kingdom tomorrow, because it is, in terms of size, really quite big. And joining me now is GB News' political editor, Darren McCaffrey. Darren, give us a brief on what's happening across the UK, please. 
Well, Nigel, millions of voters in England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland are going to go to the polls uh, tomorrow. In England, it is not that every single council seat in the country is up for grabs. For example, here in Sunderland and indeed in most of the North East, it's only a third of seats. And actually many of the seats, over half of them, will be fought in the capital in uh, London. Whereas in Scotland and Wales, every council seat is up uh, for grabs. And crucially, and possibly the most important election actually will take place in Northern Ireland, uh, Nigel, where the entire Northern Irish Assembly is up for election, 90 MLAs. That will be crucial, potentially an historic shift there in Northern Ireland, when it's likely that Sinn Féin will for the first time be the largest party and could secure the First Minister's position. Yeah, I mean, you're right, it is a very significant election in Northern Ireland. But tell me, in terms of these elections, what do you think the significance is for... Johnson, Starmer, and perhaps even the Liberal Democrats. Well, in many ways, there's actually an awful lot of pressure on all of them. Uh, certainly, at least, Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. What do I say that? Well, it's interesting. It's always interesting, isn't it, to find out where the leaders have been campaigning on the last day. Boris Johnson today was in Eastleigh, near Southampton, in Hampshire. Now, that is a Conservative seat, but it used to be Liberal Democrat. And there is concern, not about the Red Wall here in the North in the Conservative Party, but about what's going to happen in the South and potentially some of their supporters drifting to the Liberal Democrats. The government is He's going to lose seats. There's no doubt about that. It's pretty normal. It's a midterm election. Governments get a kicking at Nigel. It's the scale of the defeat, I think, for the Conservatives uh, that could get Boris Johnson into trouble if it's a really, really bad uh, day for the Prime Minister. But there's pressure on Keir Starmer uh, too. He was in Wakefield today. It's going to be a by-election there uh, very soon. Labour need to win places like Wakefield if they've got any chance of convincing anyone that they can win the next election. If Labour don't do well there, or indeed here in Sunderland, where it's possible they might lose control of the council, uh, many people would say trying to overturn that 80-seat majority is nigh impossible. So, as always with these things, it's local issues, but it's a national narrative. And depending on the results, the pressure could pile on either leader over the weekend. And that really could set up our politics. Uh, in, the, in the months to come, it, it really could affect what happens internally within those political parties. Yeah, absolutely. Darren, thank you very much indeed for that. And some of us will stay up late tomorrow night to get the results, but most of them, the most significant results, will come through late morning, lunchtime on Friday. Now, let's get into the prediction game of how many seats are going to be won or lost. And I'm joined by James Johnson from JL Partners, a former special advisor to Theresa May, an all-round polling expert. James, good evening. Welcome to the programme. So let's get straight to it. How many seats are the Conservatives going to lose? Oh, the predicting game, uh, a difficult one for pollsters, of course. Uh, no one's ever been burnt on that one before. Um, I think uh, I think we are going to see Conservatives beat <laughs> uh, losses. Uh, look, simple answer is polling local elections is a bit of a mug's game because the turnout varies so much. Um, and no, and obviously the people are voting on local issues. Some areas aren't fully voting. Uh, um, and I think what we've got to think about there is uh, effectively, you know, when you get a larger uh, swing to conservatives in some of these areas, um, particularly in the South, we might see some significant seat losses. So I think we might see in the hundreds, if we see above 300 losses for the conservatives, that can be really worrying for Boris Johnson. 
Yeah, it would. And, and, and as we say, there's pressure on the Labour Party too. Um, tell me, from your polling, how significant has Partygate been? And I know it's early to say, but if it has been significant and if it has been damaging the Conservatives, does Beergate, or, and, in, and I accept it's one event we're talking about, not several, but does Beergate, to some extent, neutralise the damage that Partygate's done to the Tories on the basis that people just throw their hands up in the air and say a plague on both your houses? So currently with this Beergate situation, um, it's, it, it could take off, it could get more significant. Uh, one warning on all of this is, of course, in December, when the Partygate story for Boris Johnson first broke, it only took until mid-January that the public got really angry about it. So it could take off more. At the moment, though, I'm not seeing a big impact on public opinion. People who already dislike Keir Starmer strongly are very worked up about it and very incensed by it. But it's not lighting the public imagination so far in the way that it did with Boris Johnson earlier in the year. There was a YouGov poll asking whether people thought Keir Starmer had broken lockdown rules. And people said no more than, more than yes. And that had barely changed since January. So certainly one to watch, but at the moment, not really seeing it, it negating uh, Boris Johnson's view. Obviously, it could lead to a lot of voters just sort of shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, they're all as bad as each other, aren't they? And I think that's, again, one of the yeah. key things to watch yeah. tomorrow, how many people actually stay at home, particularly on the Conservative side. Yeah, well, there's a lot, you know, some indications that up to half of people who voted Conservative in 2019 will stay at home. Uh, and for the Labour Party, that number is quite a lot lower. So you're right. Turnout, who can be bothered, of course, very, very important. Just a final thought on this. You know, when we vote in our local district council, how much of our vote is determined on local issues as opposed to national issues? Or is this just an impossible question to answer? Slightly depends on, on which election it is. I think mostly voters are pretty wise to what they're voting for. They know these are local council elections. They know these are things about things like bins and potholes, uh, council tax. So I think largely local. But in the background, people always have the party and the national leader in mind. And I think that's why we saw, you know, in the run-up to the 2010 election, we saw Labour do very badly in local elections. In, in, the, in the 90s, we saw the Conservatives do very badly in local elections. It was almost like people couldn't bring yeah. themselves to vote for the party locally because of their reputation nationally. And I think we might see the same thing a little bit t tomorrow. It, yes, people who might have traditionally voted Conservative on local issues like council tax, having in the back of their mind, do I still trust the leader and can I bring myself to come out in the current aura that we're in? But yeah, I do think, you know, ultimately, these elections are about bins. And I think we're going to see that reflected too. James Johnson, thank you very much indeed. So, does Beergate neutralise Partygate? Is Starmer damaged? John McTurnan joins me, former political secretary, of course, to Tony Blair when he was Prime Minister. John, welcome to the programme. Um, Starmer today, evasive, and that's perhaps a nice word to use, just absolutely stonewalling any question about whether the police had been in touch in Durham, completely ignoring questions about how many were at that event. Um, it doesn't look very good, John, does it? I think 
the issue was closed when the Durham police investigated it and said there was no, there was, there was nothing to it. And the, the Tory politicians <coughs> who are trying to pressurise the police to reopen an investigation they've held um, are kind of playing fast and loose with the rule of law. Either the police are independent or the government of the day tell them to go after their opponents. That feels much more like a third world country really than Britain, where Britain should be. Well, I don't know about that, John. I think uh, if we look at it initially, the Metropolitan Police weren't going to do anything about the number 10 parties, and later on, after more stories came out, they were. But the real question I'm putting to you is about Sir Keir Starmer himself. As I say, on a whole series of interviews over the course of the last couple of days, just point blank refusing to answer questions. And he has set himself up in many ways over the last few months at the dispatch box with his criticisms of Johnson, his accusations that Johnson is not telling the truth. He set himself up to be setting the standards in public life. He's not really living by them, is he? Well, he's got his message across. He got his message across on Partygate, which was that there was something fishy there. He pushed and pushed until there was an investigation by the civil service. And it was actually the civil service investigation that triggered the Metropolitan Police. So in that sense, that was the system working Question raised by a newspaper, question raised in the Commons, question uh, goes to an investigation, investigation leads to the police. Um, in this <coughs> yeah. situation, it doesn't want, to be, doesn't want to be taken off message. The message is cost of living, and we've seen the government stumble on cost of living. What was it the PM said? If you're a pensioner and, you're, and you've got problems with your heating bills, get on the bus and travel around because the, tra the f travel is free because of the generosity of the government and him particularly in London. Um, was it that um, the, uh, oh, the, it was the uh, Environment Secretary uh, George Eustace saying, well, people could budget better by che by choosing um, the, the, the no-brand items in the shop. I think the issue is this battle is going to be about cost of living. That's the only real issue. People decide on Partygate. I think that's what's that, reflecting what James that may well. That may well be right, but let me just one last time put this point to you, that Keir Starmer has been trying to set the standards for public life, holding himself up to be virtuous and truthful. And he will not answer very simple, very straightforward questions about what happened in that room in Durham this time last year. I put it to you, John, that isn't really good enough. Look, his, his office have answered. He's answered. The police have looked into it. They've cleared him. No, um, no. You don't... No, this, no, this, no, this, no, this is, no, this is, no, John, no. This is... No. This is, this is, this is John, know, John, he hasn't answered. If you, if, you, if you touch pitch, does it not defile you? Um, mud is being slung, and Keir is sticking to his soundbite, sticking to his message, yeah. and what gets clipped... In yeah, the, oh, in, he's in sticking to his soundbites. Is, is the message he's putting across. And I he's sticking to his soundbites. Um, he's not answering. He's not answering straight questions, John. He's not answering straight... And nor are you. I'm just saying to you, is it unreasonable... For Keir Starmer to be asked repeatedly today, how many people were in that room? Is that an unreasonable it is, question? It, it, the it, leader it, of the opposition. It, it, is, un, it, it, is, it is unreasonable to, to, for him to be pestered is and it? followed around with this question. His office announced it, the cops have investigated it, um, and at some point this issue will die, and it will die either on the election's results tomorrow, or it will definitely die on the day of the Wakefield by election, uh, because the country has decided where it's going to go on this. It thinks here is worthy. He thinks Keir is a bit dull sometimes, 
but it thinks Keir is trustworthy, and mm. it sees what he does within those things. He thought that the Prime Minister well, was a joker, thought he was fun and a well, lark, and then, then, then the country now thinks he was having a laugh at them. And those are very different situations. So does this well, damage the, the brand? That, all of that, As James said, I don't think so. John, all of that may be true. All of that may be true. I thank you for coming on and talking to us. But I do finish by saying Keir Starmer has been highly, highly evasive. John, thank you. Well, there you are. You've had a robust defence there of Keir Starmer and Beergate. Have to say, I think Starmer has been very, very evasive, and that's not too impressive. In the light of Beergate, I asked you, are they all as bad as each other? Well, some of your reactions that have come in, Adrian says, making a mockery of politics, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, which one to choose, question mark. Zeus says, politics today is about personalities and personal lives, not politics. As long as they can do their job, I don't care. No one is perfect. No, and I'm sure many people would agree with that. But if you're not perfect, don't try and tell the country that actually you are. Another message. Conservatives urgently need new leadership and Labour are horrific. I think that qualifies as a plague on both your houses. Tammy says, I think they are mostly compromised. The problem is local elections don't really sell themselves. Most will just vote on the party they are affiliated with. None seem to have any real solutions or goals. I guess it depends, Tammy, what's in the mind of the voter. Are they thinking about the local issues? Are they thinking about the national issues? What is the mix? What is the balance between the two? Depends a bit, I guess, where you live. And Brown says, for the first time in my life, I won't be voting. I am disgusted with all the parties. None of them give two hoots for the less well off. Well, as I say, I do feel in many ways our politics is in quite a bad place. I think our politics, our whole system is in need of urgent, radical reform, uh, you know, absolutely from top to bottom. But hey, there's not time for that today. We'll do it another time. Now, it's, I can't even believe it really, but it's 15 years ago yesterday that little Madeleine McCann went missing on the Algarve. It was a story that became an absolute national and international sensation. Right from the very start, there were some, I think, really serious doubts about the ways in which the Portuguese police had handled this investigation. And a very long campaign was fought by her parents, both of whom I met when I was a member of the European Parliament in Strasbourg, and I must say I felt deeply sorry for. But it does appear that some fresh evidence has emerged over the course of the last few days linking the disappearance of Madeleine McCann to a known convicted German paedophile. Well, to bring us up to date with all of this is Charlie Hedges, MBE, uh, and, of course, the former head of child exploitation uh, and, and uh, at the National Crime Agency. And, and, Charlie, you're just about the best in the business at helping find missing persons. And thank you very much for joining us. Um, explain, please, to the audience what these new leads are. Well, in any cold case such as this, which is 15 years old, it's a question of building the pieces, putting the building blocks together, creating the jigsaw puzzle to try and understand what's going on. Good, hard evidence is sometimes hard to find, so we may have to result on circumstantial. We seem to have some additional um, evidence that's come forward and linked with the change to Aguila status uh, for Christian B. Uh, it does tend to indicate we're heading in the right direction at last. 
And this is something to do with fibres from, um, from night garments, yes? That's right, yes, from the pink pyjamas that uh, Madeline was wearing on the night that she disappeared. Uh, it would appear that they found some of those fibres within uh, the suspect's vehicle. Right, OK, well, that would sound like some pretty strong evidence. Question for you, Charlie. I said at the beginning uh, of our conversation that there were, at least I harboured, uh, I'm sure many others did, some pretty serious doubts about the ways in which the Portuguese police handled this. And, and if this new evidence of these fibres in Christian B's van that match up with Madeline's nightclothes um, have just emerged. Why has this all taken 15 years? What did the Portuguese police get wrong? Well, I think the, what's critical in these cases is to be able to understand the circumstances, make a proper risk triage of the information to understand what we're doing and then apply the right resources quickly. The longer it goes on, the harder it gets, the more difficult it is to, to tie things together. It's natural that one would look at the, the parents because most abductions are by people known to the victim. Uh, but, they, but whether they're ruled in or ruled out, that's an important thing to do right from the outset. And gather the information, do the proper searches, do the proper investigations, and then you've got a real chance of being able to solve it. And that's really my point. Did the Portuguese police do this properly? Well, there are certainly questions over that, um, and uh, a lot of criticism has been levelled at them, a lot of mudslinging and, and difficulty. Um, and certainly, one would have hoped that uh, a more thorough uh, an immediate investigation could have been done uh, to establish exactly what had gone on, secure evidence, because um, that's a critical issue. If you don't secure the scene, the evidence gets contaminated or lost. So, um, yes, there are indications that things weren't done as expeditiously as they might have been. And there was something about this case, wasn't there, Charlie? I, I don't know what it was, but something about this case uh, that just, it just ran as a story, certainly in the British press, for year after year after year. And I guess it's because nobody was ever found. Um, in cases like this, missing children, missing uh, persons of any age, how, how uncommon is it for a body not to appear? How often do people just get abducted and are never seen again? Unfortunately, it's, it's rather more common than uh, a lot of people would expect. Uh, many, many cases are reported to the police every year, and there are, uh, it's in the thousands, can be counted the number of cases that haven't been resolved. Um, some of those are because of a, a poor investigation to start off with, uh, and some of them are just very difficult to explain. So Madeline isn't completely an isolated case, um, but it has captured the, the imagination, the same as April Jones did when mm. she went missing uh, in the UK. That had a huge following but was resolved fairly well, and that was a good example of how the police did a really good job, really supported the families, put every effort into it, and although a body's never been found, uh, we were able to bring a reasonable conclusion to the case for the sake of the family. Charlie Hedges, thank you very much indeed for joining me here on GB News, and let's hope for the sake, particularly of those parents, uh, that we do get some finality, some proper end to this story, and some, some sense of justice. Now, moving on, it's time for the What the Farage moments that have taken place today. And absolutely at the top of my list is the extraordinary sale for £7.1 million. 
the shirt that was worn by Maradona, the Argentinian footballer, on that famous night where he described that goal himself as the hand of God. I won't tell you what Peter Shilton, uh, the England footballer, said about it, but perhaps uh, it wasn't quite as plied as that. It was just the most appalling act of gamesmanship, of cheating. Uh, it was cynical at the most appalling level. It's always hard, always hard, when England lose. But to lose that way, in those circumstances, truly awful. And after the game, some players swapped shirts. And Steve Hodge, the England player, swapped his shirt. He got Maradona's shirt. And he's sat onto that shirt for years and years and years. He's had it out on loan to a museum. And now it's sold for an incredible £7.1 million. Amazing. And while we're talking about Argentina, today is the 40th anniversary of the sinking of HMS Sheffield in the Falklands War, seen as a reprisal attack using a French Exocet missile um, two or three days after the General Belgrano had been sunk. And I do remember, for those of us that were way too young to remember World War II, the incredible shock of a royal naval vessel going to the bottom of the ocean with a loss of life. Depressingly, it is a what the Farage moment, but perhaps it's not a surprise at all. And it's this, according to the World Health Organization, the report predicts that Britain will become the fattest nation in Europe by 2023. We will overtake Malta and Turkey, and we currently have between 25 and 30 percent of the British population who are dangerously overweight. And, yep, it's all to do with delivery apps. You go through any big city these days, you see these youngsters on bicycles and mopeds, I've no doubt before long. It'll be electric scooters, and we seem to have become a nation of people addicted to takeaway food or pre-made food, high in all the wrong stuff, all the wrong fats, too much sugar, too much salt. We are becoming grossly overweight as a nation. The impact on our health is bad today, but given the sheer number of young people that are seriously overweight, goodness knows what future awaits in terms of diabetes and many, many other problems. And finally, and this really is a what the Farage shock, so there's about to be a press event premiere for the new Top Gun film, Maverick, which comes out very, very soon, and the RAF were invited to send along a face. And their advert ran like this. Do you know of any pilot... Preferably not a white male who would like to be the RAF face at an event for the release of Top Gun 2. Uh, appalling, divisive, self-defeating. I'm pleased to say the RAF bosses have now apologised for putting up that inappropriate advert. But it goes to show you this obsession with diversity actually goes way beyond promoting decency and fairness and starts to cause massive upset and insult to huge majorities of the population, regardless of their colour. Shame on you, the RAF, for getting that so badly wrong. Good, I guess, in the end, that you did choose to apologise. Now, some more thoughts, some more reactions on Beergate, on Starmer's absolute, complete, total evasiveness. 
Julian says, I am bored. Let's move on, please. Julian, I quite understand that. I know people have been bored by this, but it is happening. And you just can't have the leader of the opposition attacking the Tories, calling the Prime Minister a liar week after week after week if his own standards do not match up to the rhetoric that he's used in public. And that is why it matters. That's why Partygate matters. It isn't the fact these events took place. It's the cover-ups, the evasion, the lies. That's what matters. I think what people want are straight-talking politicians who just once or twice put their hands up and say, sorry, I got it wrong. We can live with that. We can accept that. Bobby says, when Starmer and Rayner were tearing into Johnson, they knew they'd done the very same thing. The cynicism is beyond belief. Ryan says no. There are quite a few good politicians. Lee Anderson, David Davis, Lord Frost, Mark Francois and you, Nigel. Well, I think I'm retired now, Ryan, but it's very sweet of you. And thank you. Chris says, the fact remains, Nigel, the police will not pursue Keir Starmer for a breach that appears no different to the Prime Minister and others arriving for a meeting and eating a slice of cake. Neither do they find Jeremy Corbyn when he was photographed at a dinner party for which he apologised. The police are in danger of being accused of playing politics. Well, it has been said, it has been suggested that the police force, police and crime commissioners up in Durham, up in that part of the North East, are dominated by the Labour Party. Whether that's fair or not, who am I to judge? Anyway, we'll find out by Friday lunchtime what the impact of these local elections has been. Well, it's time for Talking Pints, and tonight it's a remote Talking Pints. I'm here in the United Kingdom, and Emma Jo Morris, who is the political editor of the Breitbart News Network, joins me from New York. Emma Jo, welcome to the programme. And I do Thank have you. an American Cheers. beer, I promise you. I, I, Cheers. I now... <laughs> <laughs> no, it is an American beer, and, and I'll have you know that there are quite a lot of American IPAs and other beers that are now freely on sale here in the United Kingdom. Who would have thought it? Now, you're there at Breitbart News, and I must, before we get to the heart of this, I think, very important story, we must talk about J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance, author of Hillbilly Elegy, a book that sold in huge numbers, a book that actually showed the disconnect that was taking place between the big cities on the coasts and middle America. And J.D. Vance, somebody that I've met many, many times myself, he won the primary in Ohio last night. For those that don't know, he's going to be the Republican candidate running for Senate. He had been miles behind the other candidates. Mm -hmm. And then three weeks ago, a guy called Donald J. Trump endorsed him and he won it. So, Emma Jo... Reflections and thoughts, please, on J.D. Vance's victory and the present power that Donald Trump enjoys amongst Republican supporters. Yeah, I mean, this was a fascinating race because, like you said, uh, J.D. was struggling throughout most of the campaign. And uh, and then all of a sudden, Donald Trump swoops in and made that endorsement, which I think was absolutely brilliant and a perfect endorsement for Trump, a perfect fit for him. Uh, he did a rally for J.D. and uh, and just he took off. He absolutely took off. And it goes to show that this is still Trump's party. You know, the GOP, the, the Republican Party is not going back to its establishment ways. It's not 
the voters are not ready for that and they don't want that and they still want somebody who is going to fight for their interests which often clash with the interests of the establishment you know of washington um because that city and the beltway in general even in new york is so far removed from the reality and the life of the voters and the people in the rest of the country. And Ohio, I think, is going to be a really interesting race because J.D. is now in the general election going to be running against uh, a politician who has been in politics for 20 years, uh, Tim Ryan, the Democrat. And he uh, is has presided over Ohio, especially the state that J.D. is running in, being absolutely decimated by the globalist economic policy um, uh, by exporting, you know, manufacturing jobs to China, by, you know, focusing on a corporate-centric, bottom-line-centric economic policy, uh, an economic policy that was devised on Wall Street. And I think that JD is really going to go for that in Trump form and really hit him on that and ask him to answer for the last 20 years where Ohioans have been so hurt. Yeah, and he does bring uh, some real intellectualism, I think. Um, and, you know, if he wins, he'll bring it into the Senate with him. No, it's been very, very interesting. Now, Emma Jo, in a previous incarnation, there you were at the New York Post. It's October 2020. There's a really big election going on for the presidency. And a laptop emerges from a character called Hunter Biden, uh, the son of Joe Biden. Just just give us a brief resume, Emma Joe, of what was found on that laptop and what you chose to put on the front page of the New York Post. Yeah, so um, I got I obtained the laptop really like just about four weeks before voting day. Um, and there are hundreds of thousands of documents on this computer. Um, they're all disorganized. You know, this is somebody else's personal computer. They're not gonna be, you know, necessarily cataloged in an easily accessible way. Um, and obviously his business is mixed in with his personal life and mixed in with all kinds of other things and his subscriptions and whatever. So this is a huge trove of documents that I got um, and we were kind of under the gun to a verify their authenticity and b find the things that were newsworthy so you're going through it and hunter has so much business all over the world and and so much business everywhere um some of which you know we already knew about that peter schweitzer had previously reported on and that the new york post had previously reported on and uh, and then you have to parse through that to find the stuff that we didn't previously know so i had guidance from my then editor-in-chief um where we were talking about what are we going to publish? What are we going to, what are we looking for here? And she said, um, I know that Hunter Biden is a consultant. That's not news. Um, I know that he's sketchy even. That's not news. Um, I want to know what, how deep does this go? You know, let's break a story that is going to be really something that the world has never seen before. So I took that advice and I went on to the hard drive and um, I started looking through the Burisma documents because Joe Biden had previously said that he had uh, a Ukrainian official fired because of investigations of Burisma. So I wanted to know what was the more intimate details of that story. So I started looking through the Burisma contacts and lo and behold, I found the first story, which, uh, you know, your producers have put up on screen. That was that cover that said, thank you for the opportunity to meet your yeah. father. So let's just recap that for those that are not on this story. So basically, you've got Hunter Biden 
is doing business in Ukraine. He is earning fifty to eighty thousand dollars a month working for an oil and gas company, despite having no experience in the industry whatsoever. And the contacts within that company met with the then vice president of the United States of America. Is that about it? That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Aside from that, we also uncovered on the on the hard drive, which we also published in side stories that day that uh, imagine that this is a sidebar story, but that, you know, the White House was leaking conference calls to Burisma. The White House was leaking documents to Burisma um, through a PR company that was obtained that was hired by Hunter Biden um, on behalf of Burisma um, on the U.S. side. So there was just heaps of corruption. uh, Well, what appears to be corruption, <laughs> um, you know, with regard to Hunter, the this Ukrainian ca- company, Burisma, and Joe Biden, implicating Joe Biden directly. And that was the first tranche of stories. And then um, on the second day, we went, we uncovered the, the CEFC deal, and we published that on the second drop, which was that Hunter, the infamous line, uh, Hunter will hold 10% equity in a company with a, with in partnership with the Chinese Communist Party, 10% for the big guy who, Joe Biden. The big, <laughs> we, the we, big we, guy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you published that story. And, 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 and then there was a Russia link as well, wasn't there? Yeah, well, that's, that actually wasn't uncovered by the New York Post. That was uncovered by the Senate uh, committee. The Republicans on, in the Senate did a big deep dive and investigation into Hunter and his business. And they uncovered that Hunter had received a $3 million payment from uh, the widow of the mayor of Moscow. You can't make it up. Astonishing <laughs> stuff. Well, you really can't make it up. But Emma Joe, here's the really important part of this story. So great journalism, uh, you know, from you guys at the New York Post and others in, in revealing all of this. And, it, you know, it gets published, but then it appears to just disappear as a story. And from what I can see of it, and, and you were involved directly, the rest of mainstream media refused to cover it and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all our friends on the West Coast just literally buried this story. Is that about what happened? Yeah, so that was what ended up becoming the real scandal is when I went to sleep on the night of October 13th, the night before we published our first story of 2020, I thought that I was going to deliver a story about what appeared to be corruption by one man and his family, Joe Biden. And what I realized very soon um, in the morning of October 14th, the day that we published, was that this was actually going to be a story of corruption, not of one man but of an entire system and an entire institution of multiple players, including the security state, including big tech, including the legacy media, and including the Democratic Party, a conspiracy among those parties to uh, protect that man and his family. And, and, And Emma Jo, what I've seen over the last few weeks are the New York Times and others now acknowledging that the stories you wrote were actually correct. So they're doing kind of a funny thing. Uh, They are saying, they're acknowledging that the laptop is authentic, but they won't go as far, they're stopping just short of acknowledging the reporting by the New York Post, which is 
very strange, but they're making a distinction between the laptop and that authenticity and the authenticity of the reporting based on the laptop in the New York Post. They still don't want to go so far as to implicate Joe Biden or to or to acknowledge that he is implicated in all of this. But it's so it's a very bizarre thing. Um, it feels like a head game, actually, where they're saying, you know, we're doing this reporting based on the laptop and the laptop is authentic. The Washington Post actually hired a big tech team to do a forensic analysis of the laptop where they found it was authentic. But then they won't acknowledge what's on it. It's very bizarre. No, wow. No, it really, really is. One of the reasons that Elon Musk uh, quoted for his audacious bid, now accepted by the board of Twitter, was the suppression of those very stories that you were working on. Can Elon Musk come along and save the day, or is that me being wildly over-optimistic? No, I don't think it's overly optimistic. I think if you're operating based on what he said, it, it kind of looks that way. And there are many things that he can do to help uh, rectify this situation. Namely, he can obtain the company documents from the day and the time leading up to this this event. Um, he can hand those over to Congress. He can hand those over to the DOJ if anything that he presumes is criminal went on, which I would imagine that it's at least walking that line, if not over that line. Um, I think that he can obviously run the platform politically neutral going forward, which is, you know, that's what he has pledged to do. And that's the reason why he says he bought the platform in the first place. Um, so there are things that he can do. And I think that he will try at least, or that's what he's claimed to save the day. Um, but I think that he's going to face, as we've seen, you know, with Trump and and as we've seen in Brexit that, you know, somebody can come in with intentions and honest intentions and a plan even to execute something that the establishment doesn't like. But when you have to actually come up against them, they will put up a fight. They're not just going to toss you the keys. And I think that that's what Elon Musk is about to experience. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. Final thought, Emma Jo. Abortion is not a big political issue on this side of the pond. Uh, there is a pretty broad acceptance of it, uh, arguments about the number of weeks, etc. Um, and there are some, of course, completely opposed. In America, things are very different. A leak from the Supreme Court, unlike anything that's ever been leaked before. Actually, this has been done, hasn't it, by Democrat supporters, and it doesn't actually really help the Republican Party. That's my view. What do you think? Uh, so I, we don't know exactly who the leaker is. It would appear that it was an activist Democrat, probably a clerk, I would imagine. Um, so, you know, it's like an intern yeah. of, of justices yeah. of the Supreme Court who have access to these documents who are law students. Um, I, I would imagine it's one of them. Um, this was clearly, in my opinion, done as a way to try to intimidate the conservative justices on the court. You know, we have a rioting uh, tendency in, in America and... Um, when people are really triggered, they tend to go and try and, you know, basically in mob justice their way, uh, you know, to getting their interests met. And I think that that's probably what the intention was of this leak was to get people riled up, to get people out in the streets and to to exert a tremendous amount of public pressure, which Politico actually kind of wrote in their in their story that the person who leaked it leaked it so that there could be a public response. Uh, before the uh, decision was made final. And no matter what you think of abortion is not really relevant. It's the fact that our, you know, our Supreme Court is sacred and the process for it has been 
undermined in this act in a really gross and and um, right. you know way of trying to incite against the it, justice. It absolutely has the of the institution. Yeah. That's for sure. No, it absolutely has. Well, temperatures are high in American politics. It's going to be a fascinating year. And Emma Jo Morris, I want to say thank you for coming on Talking Pints and great work. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. Uh, that was fascinating, and I really do hope Elon Musk is able to turn this around. We can get actual open debate on matters that issue all around the free world. It's Barrage the Farage time. What have we got today? Chris says, do you think this is a coincidence that his, this Ministry of Truth was established less than a week after Elon Musk buys Twitter. This is Biden's new... Well, it's not actually called the Ministry of Truth, but that's what its critics are calling it. We talked about it last night. It is worrying. The attempt to stamp out free speech is a concern. We must together beat it. Alan says, do you feel that given the opportunity, MPs of all present parties would take the UK back into the EU. No, Alan, they wouldn't do it. It would be electoral suicide, and Labour most certainly could not do it. It isn't going to happen, although the Lib Dems, in their own minds, would like to. Joseph says, do you think that in the abortion debate, the Liberals seem to forget the children? Joseph, I'm not going to get deeply into the abortion debate right here and now. I do believe in choice. I'm not sure we've got our law right. I think the weeks we extend to have gone too far. But that's all for another day. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. I'm back with you tomorrow. It's election day, of course, for many. We won't discuss them at all. (laughs) 